What institutional incentives are there for Canada to keep promoting the nuclear industry? Have partnerships with the United States and the nuclear deal with India restricted the ability of Canada to get off of nuclear? How safe are Canadian and American-based reactors from a Fukushima-style incident? What role did money play in affecting the response by Japanese authorities to the Fukushima Daiichi disaster? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we continue a conversation on the state of the nuclear industry and nuclear power six years after the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear catastrophe by speaking with two experts. First up, Gordon Edwards of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility explains the Canadian government's 70-year embrace of the atom. And later, Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education discusses the state of nuclear reactors and regulation in both Canada and the U.S. before bringing us up to date on the Japanese government's efforts to protect the public as well as the nuclear sector. On this week's program, Managing the Nuclear Risk, Six Years After Fukushima, Conversations with Gordon Edwards and Arnie Gunderson. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of March 17, 2017. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, an occupied Anishinaabe territory on the homeland of the Métis Nation. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today, from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Donald Trump's $1 trillion infrastructure plan is not an infrastructure plan and it won't put $1 trillion to fiscal stimulus into the economy. It's basically a scheme for handing over public assets to private corporations that will extract maximum profits via user fees and tolls. Because the plan is essentially a boondoggle, it will not lift the economy out of the doldrums, increase activity or boost growth. Quite the contrary, when the details of how the program is going to be implemented are announced, public confidence in the Trump administration is going to wither and stock prices are going to plunge. That comes from the article, Trump's $1 trillion infrastructure boondoggle, handing over public assets to private corporations, by Mike Whitney, posted March 16th, originally appearing at Counterpunch. As the infamous big lie reasoning goes, if you keep repeating a falsehood over and over again, people will sooner or later believe it. And so Kagami relentlessly went on a global stage and repeatedly lied that he had built an economic powerhouse. He had a motive. He believed that if he convinced his international supporters that he was creating prosperity in Rwanda, that they would tolerate his human rights abuses. In other words, Kagami sold them a trade-off. He told them that Rwandan people are more interested in food and jobs than democracy and human rights. That comes from an interview with David Himbara, conducted by Anne Garrison, under the headline, Kagami's Economic Mirage in Rwanda, posted March 16th. 
Indeed, the West's involvement in Syria by its very nature puts the blood of every individual killed in that conflict squarely on the hands of the Western nations that engineered the crisis to begin with. Without the West, there would have been no quote-unquote revolution, no moderate cannibals, and no armed conflict whatsoever. But it is important to point out here that what Eva Bartlett witnessed was Western journalists who were clearly exposed to the same facts and incidents as herself, to but who returned to their writing desks to report the opposite, or at the very least, something so skewed and misrepresented that it might as well have been a bald-faced lie. Others who have traveled to Syria have also found that their Western counterparts were reporting stories vastly different from their actual experiences. So while the mainstream media maligns Ava Bartlett as a Russian agent, the truth of the matter is that the corporate outlets are agents of disinformation and propaganda as more and more Americans are beginning to learn by the day. That comes from the article, Corporate Media Exposed for Reporting Syria Misinformation, Canadian journalist Ava Bartlett, by Brandon Turbeville, posted March 16th, originally appearing at Activist Post. Campaigner Dr. Rosemary Mason has just written an open letter to the global pesticide regulatory authorities and the UK and US media. To make her case, Dr. Mason draws on that report as well as new findings and revelations that have emerged thus far in 2017. Over the past few years, in her numerous documents, Mason has described the devastating effects of agrochemicals and has singled out certain individuals who should be standing in the dock to answer for their roles they have played in poisoning the environment and damaging public health. She has supplied strong evidence to highlight how agrochemicals are killing us and how public institutions and governments collude with the industry to frame legislation and policies. That comes from the article, Stop Protecting the Criminality of the Global Pesticides Industry, by Colin Todd Hunter, posted March 16th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Joining us now to put the Fukushima disaster and the nuclear industry in the Canadian context, we're joined by Gordon Edwards. He's the president of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. Can you give us some background on your organization? Well, my organization was founded back in 1975 uh, as a result of uh, two major events. One was the first explosion of an atomic bomb by India using plutonium from a Canadian nuclear reactor that was given to India as a gift in 1974. And then uh, in 1975, there was the discovery of extensive radioactive contamination in the town of Port Hope, Ontario, where um, a lot of the uranium for the World War II atomic bomb project had been processed. And uh, they had to evacuate an elementary school called St. Mary's School uh, because of the very high 
rate on gas levels in the cafeteria, which were higher than those allowed in uranium mines. And then they discovered that hundreds of towns and buildings were radioactively contaminated because of the use of radioactive material as building material uh, given to the townspeople and the construction workers by a federally owned crown corporation, El Dorado Nuclear, uh, which was simply telling their workers that they could help themselves to the radioactive waste and use it uh, for whatever purpose they wished. So that was what uh, led to the formation of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility in Montreal here uh, in the basement of 2010 McKay Street, which was connected to Concordia University, where Fred Nelman was the professor of uh, science and human affairs there. And I was the, um, at that time, I was the adjunct professor of uh, science and human affairs. And there were about 30 of us gathered in the basement of 2010 McKay Street. And we decided that we needed to form a national organization that would have two purposes. One would be to act as a clearinghouse for information on nuclear issues for communities and groups across Canada. Um, and the second would be to form a united front calling on the government of Canada to open a public inquiry into the costs, risks, and benefits of nuclear power, because we felt that if, uh, if there was an inquiry into this, into this whole topic, that uh, we had no doubt that the Canadian parliamentarians and the Canadian public would decide that it's not the path which Canada should be pursuing. Mm. Uh, however, the uh, the government of Canada has never had such inquiry in its entire life, and the actual subject of nuclear power and nuclear policy has never actually been debated in in the House of Commons. So we have a policy here, which was brought in during World War II in secrecy, with billions and billions, tens of billions of dollars spent uh, of federal money subsidizing and creating, in fact, the nuclear industry in Canada and the uranium industry without any real democratic process. Mm. It seems as if, yes, uh, the, uh, something I've noticed is that the, there's been a lot of boosterism for the, the nuclear industry within Canada. And, and certainly, you know, Canada is like the, a major, I think, the second largest exporter of uranium in the world. And uh, there's, uh, you know, the, the, the can-do reactors that uh, have been uh, constructed uh, over the years. But I'm wondering, you know, looking at that historical perspective, what are the main institutional forces that you would say that seems to have incentivized this nuclear industry within the country? Well, um, during World War II, um, Canada was approached by first the British and then the Americans to um, enter into a top-secret agreement to um, uh, collaborate on the World War II atomic bomb project. And uh, th this was twofold in nature. One was the fact that Canada had the only freely available source of uranium uh, that could be immediately applied to a nuclear weapons program, and that was because of a historical fact that we had uh, a private company based in Ontario had opened a radium mine in Northwest Territories on Great Bear Lake, way up uh, uh, just, just near the Arctic Circle um, at a place called Port Radium, and radium happens to be a byproduct, a radioactive byproduct of uranium. 
And so where there is radium, there is uranium. Now, for, for about 10 years, uh, radium was processed at Port Hope, Ontario, in a, in a refinery there. And there were lots of wastes that were stored in, well, some of the wastes were dumped in the harbor, some were stored uh, in ravines. There were deep ravines around town, and it was just dumped into the ravines. They also had, in some cases, farmer silos that were filled up with radioactive waste. But this radioactive waste contained uranium, which had no commercial value at the time. So it was the radium that they were extracting and leaving the uranium behind. That made, that meant that when they uh, discovered in 1939, when they discovered that you could uh, possibly make a powerful atomic bomb using uranium, um, where can you find uranium? Well, Czechoslovakia is one place, but that had been invaded by the Nazis. Um, um, and Belgian Congo was another place where they had rich uranium deposits, but the Bel Belgium had been r overrun by the Nazi war machine. Um, so the only place that really you could find uh, available uranium was Canada. So Canada supplied the uranium and also nationalized this private company, which had been called Eldorado Gold Mining, and they changed it to Eldorado Nuclear Limited. But this was all done without any parliamentary debate. It was all done in great secrecy. And C.D. Howe, who was then the, uh, the minister who was really running things uh, in the Canadian government for Mackenzie King, the prime minister, he, um, he told Parliament uh, that, uh, that certain things were being done and that he would appreciate it if there were no questions, and indeed there were no questions. And so he just went ahead and, uh, and did this. At the same time, there was, a, uh, there was an agreement to uh, transfer from Britain to Canada um, the research team that was researching the production and, and separation and use of plutonium which is another man-made nuclear explosive. Uranium is the only material in nature from which you can make an atomic bomb. But some of the uranium, uh, when it's put into a nuclear reactor, some of that uranium is transmuted into a man-made material called plutonium. And that's an even more powerful nuclear explosive than, than uranium-235. So... Um, Scientists that were uh, top uh, top nuclear scientists from Britain, from France, and from a few other parts of Europe came to Mount Royal in, here in Montreal, and they worked on the slopes of Mount Royal in a secret laboratory starting in about 1942, and they researched uh, the best ways to produce plutonium and the best ways to separate plutonium, and the experience that was undertaken there in, in Montreal, uh, not very far from where I live, as a matter of fact, just a walking distance, um, they, um, this is what gave Britain and France their head starts on their own bomb programs. Because after World War II, they went back to their own countries and they embarked upon implementing the knowledge they had gained. It's also why Britain and France both had a, uh, uh, a great advantage in the, in the technology of plutonium separation, plutonium reprocessing. It's why Britain and France became the reprocessing giants of the world at that, mm. uh, in those early days. Meanwhile, there was a permission given to build the first nuclear reactor in Canada at Chalk River. This decision was made in Washington, D.C. around Christmas of 1944, and the purpose of that uh, uh, reactor 
was to produce plutonium for bombs. In fact, there's a bronze plaque at Chalk River, Ontario, saying that this is where the first Canadian nuclear chain reaction uh, occurred, and that the purpose of this research was initially to produce plutonium for bombs. In fact, for many years afterwards, we sold all of our uranium and all of our plutonium to the United States military, specifically for weapons purposes. Up until 1965, our Canadian uranium uh, sector, mining sector, we had hundreds of mines uh, after the war, and it was all for weapons purposes because that was the only market there was. So up until 1965, all of our uranium was sold for military, for, for weapons, for the weapons buildup in the United States. And at that time, we were the largest uh, producers and exporters of uranium in the world. In 1965, Prime Minister uh, Pearson declared uh, that uh, Canada would no longer sell uranium for weapons purposes. By that time, the military contracts had already dried up. The, the, the biggest production of uranium for military purposes was in 1959, at which time it was the fourth largest export from Canada after timber, pulp and paper, and wheat uh, came uranium. And um, as I say, it was all for bombs. Mm. So that's clearly uh, the military uh, you know, aspects of it seem to be a, a major driver here. And I know that currently there's about 19 active uh, nuclear plants in Canada. I mean, I think all but one are in the province of Ontario. So, right. uh, you know, how, how is the situation uh, looking now? I, I, because uh, we're seeing, uh, and I don't know to what extent this is just public relations or if this is a, an actual phenomenon, uh, but uh, uh, there's, there's a lot of talk about using nuclear to offset uh, or, or to help meet our, our Paris climate goals. Uh, I even have a quote here from the uh, Minister of Natural Resources speaking to the Canadian uh, Nuclear Association's annual conference just a couple of weeks ago. He said, quote, Canada is one of only nine mission innovation countries to include nuclear energy as part of its clean energy portfolio. The inclusion of nuclear energy should tell you something about the importance of your industry and how it mission innovation is an opportunity for you to demonstrate that nuclear energy can contribute to Canada's clean innovation landscape. So what, what does that uh, say to you uh, looking forward? Well, it's uh, unfortunate that our government is so blinkered on the subject. Uh, they have never had any advice, uh, independent advice, on the subject of nuclear power going forward. Uh, they have allowed the nuclear industry to basically run public policy so that the Canadian government does more or less does what the nuclear industry tells them to do rather than vice versa. And in fact, uh, it's been a spectacle in the past where our prime ministers have been, in effect, can-do salesmen. Even Prime Minister Trudeau's uh, father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, when he was prime minister, was... Uh, uh, running around the world, uh, uh, and one of his main missions was to try and sell can-do reactors to anybody who would consider buying them. And the reason for this is because this is an industry that was created with public money by uh, uh, the Canadian government. And so there has been no separation, really, between the government and the industry. There, there's, uh, you couldn't drive a, you couldn't put a playing card between them. <laughs> hmm. They're so close. Uh, so it's unfortunate that that's the case, because, in fact... If you stand back and look at nuclear power, uh, you realize that it cannot really solve the global warming problem. Right now, uh, it used to produce about 17% of world 
electricity back around nine, or back around the turn of the uh, turn of the millennium, but um, it's now down to about ten percent and dropping. Um, and and so nuclear power is definitely uh, decreasing and will continue to decrease. Even promoters of nuclear power, such as the International Atomic Energy Agency, which whose mandate is primarily to promote nuclear power, um, even they admit that uh, that uh, the the nuclear decline, the decline in nuclear share of of energy production, will continue at least for the next uh, twenty to thirty years. Uh, and the reason for that is because we have about 450, 440 nuclear reactors worldwide, and they're shutting down faster than any new ones can possibly be built. There are new ones being built, uh, but they do not even replace the old ones that are being shut down. So here in Canada, for example, we have less nuclear reactors operating than we had 10 years ago. In the United States, there are fewer nuclear reactors operating than there were 10 years ago. France is shutting down nuclear reactors. And uh, uh, we're seeing uh, in the Western world, there's no doubt that there's a very sharp decline underway. Um, uh, in the East, uh, when, you look, when you look to the Orient, uh, you see uh, China. And, uh, of course, Japan had 54 nuclear reactors, which were all shut down two years after the accident, every single one of them, and now only two of them are operating, have been restarted. The other ones, some of them may be restarted, but they certainly will not all be restarted, um, maybe a third at the very most. Um, and, and and there's a lot of opposition to restarting them in Japan as well. Um, now, India it has ambitious plans, but they're having a lot of problems too. They had a nuclear accident just last year in one of their can-do clones, uh, they have about uh, 15 uh, can-do reactors, 13 of which were are their own clones. What I mean by that is that they copied the design of the reactors we gave them and made more reactors of a similar design because we had cut off nuclear cooperation with them after they used the plutonium in our first reactor to produce atomic bombs. And, of course, they have developed atomic bombs. They have not signed the Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, they are, in in that sense, a rogue nation. Uh, they have no indication of stopping to produce atomic bombs, and yet uh, the Harper government signed an agreement with India to sell them uranium. Mm. So it means that Canada it really doesn't care much whether you have atomic bombs or not. We'll sell you uranium anyway, uh, which sends a very bad signal to the entire world. I'm also curious uh, in that vein. I mean, we have a, a very special partner in the United States, uh, uh, and uh, we just uh, last, uh, while well, Obama was president, there was a special uh, memorandum of understanding on uh, concerning climate change and energy collaboration, uh, which uh, sought to expand cooperation on uh, you know energy and collaboration activities. And also now we've got Trump in power, and he's been quoted as saying that uh, we must greatly strengthen and expand, uh, or America must greatly strengthen and expand its nuclear capability until such time as the world comes to its net senses regarding nukes. So, I mean, I'm wondering, given existing partnerships between Canada, the United States, uh, military, energy, and so on, if our hands aren't tied so that we, even if we wanted to, we, we would be restricted in our ability to, uh, you know, reduce our uh, uh, focus on uh, nuclear power and nuclear energy. 
Uh, we have no we have no uh, pressure from the United States to keep our nuclear power industry going. That's entirely our our concern. Uh, uranium might be a different matter, but even there, uh, uh, America has uh, the United States has developed its own indigenous supplies of uranium. Um, I, I don't think that's a legitimate uh, point of view. Um, it, it certainly, it's true that Canada is is in a delicate position with regard to the United States, and we do have NORAD, which is a North North American. Uh, um, command, which does uh, govern nuclear weapons in terms of the defense of the United States of America, because the defense of the United States of America implies that they have to, they have to <laughs> help to defend Canada, because uh, originally it was thought that if there was going to be a nuclear war between Russia and the United States, that the missiles would fly over Canada. And uh, so even when I was a young fellow, uh, we had uh, at that time we only had bombers. You know, we had bombers in the air all the time, loaded with nuclear weapons, as portrayed in uh, that uh, Stanley Kubrick movie, Doctor Strangelove, wonderful <laughs> movie. Um, so we had in Canada uh, the dew line, the distant early warning sign, which is a radar chain across uh, Arctic Canada uh, to detect any bombers coming in from Russia. Of course, those days are largely past we still have the bombers yes but uh, now they have these uh, missiles which can deliver weapons in in a very short time and uh, we have uh, nuclear submarines which can uh, one trident submarine is capable with its nuclear payload its nuclear weapons of wiping out every major city in the northern hemisphere uh, so these are incredibly powerful uh, and in terms of the Hiroshima bomb which destroyed the city of Hiroshima and killed 100,000 people immediately and many more later, um, they don't make bombs that small anymore. I mean, even the smallest bomb that would fit inside the, the nose cone of a cruise missile, one of those self-piloted planes, as it were, um, that follows the terrain rather low to the ground and delivers its missile very accurately, even those warheads are 15 times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb. So... Um, you know, we're, we're talking here about a, uh, a real case of uh, institutional insanity. Um, now, Russia, after the end of the Cold War, Russia and the, and the United States of America, who have between them by far the greatest arsenals, um, they had deep cuts uh, to their strategic nuclear missiles, and uh, they dismantled uh, many thousands of these weapons, uh, so that, but we still have 15,000 left, and 5,000 of them are on, are on uh, more or less hair trigger alert. They could be launched within a matter of two minutes, and once launched, they cannot be recalled. There's no way to call them back again. And so we do have the power uh, to make this planet uh, uh, pretty well uninhabitable within a matter of uh, an afternoon. Hmm. Um, and even if there was a limited nuclear war. The same scientists who study global warming, uh, the same uh, computer models which are used to study what happens when, when uh, uh, carbon dioxide or other pollutants are introduced into the, into the atmosphere, have demonstrated that even a limited nuclear war involving a, just a few dozen nuclear weapons on each side, let's say between India and Pakistan, would be enough to cause a... Uh, uh, um, so much ash 
inject so much ash into the atmosphere that we would have agricultural uh, problems, uh, severe agricultural problems in the whole Western Hemisphere for several years afterwards, and this could lead to uh, to tremendous uh, hardships and starvation uh, because we wouldn't be able to grow the food that we need. So that's only a small nuclear war. When you talk about a big nuclear war, it's uh, not only the destruction of civilization, it's really the destruction of most higher forms of life. So to call this a weapon, when really it's uh, part of a suicide machine, is um, very short-sighted, and it, it means, you know, that uh, Albert Einstein was absolutely right when he said so many years ago that the splitting of the atom has changed everything except our way of thinking, and that's why we are drifting towards unparalleled catastrophe. Well, on that... Uh somewhat gloomy note. I want to thank you very much, Gordon Edwards, for sharing your thoughts with us. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. We've been speaking with Gordon Edwards, president of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility. The group's website is www.ccnr.org. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. As noted on last week's program with Helen Caldicott, the Fukushima disaster is not over, but is an ongoing catastrophe. There are lessons to be learned to prevent future mishaps, but are they sinking through? One person ideally suited to address such questions is Arnie Gunderson. Mr. Gunderson is one of the directors of Fairwinds Energy Education, a Burlington, Vermont-based information hub, which educates the public around nuclear issues. Mr. Gunderson is a nuclear engineer with over 44 years of experience in the industry. He graduated cum laude from the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and holds a master's degree in nuclear engineering, which earned him a prestigious Atomic Energy Commission fellowship. He holds a nuclear safety patent, was a licensed reactor operator, and is a former nuclear industry senior vice president. Over the course of his career, he's managed and coordinated projects at 70 nuclear power plants in the U.S. Mr. Gunnarsson, it's a great privilege to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thanks. I'm glad to be here. Mr. Gunderson, um, we just concluded a conversation with Gordon Edwards about some of the forces shaping Canada's nuclear industry. The Canadian Nuclear Association boasts of the safety of the sector, saying on its website, quote, Though Canada's nuclear facilities have been shown to be both safe and reliable, the industry cooperates with the uh, CNSC, that's our uh, nuclear uh, regulative agency, to limit the effects of any potential accident on the public and the environment. Uh, notwithstanding, there was at least one reactor catastrophe in '94 at the Pickering facility. Uh, among the 19 plants in operation currently in Canada, are there any that you think could have the propensity for impacts comparable to Fukushima? You know, I think the Pickering reactors are the the, the biggest problem in Canada, and uh, the the reasons are twofold. Uh, the first is that it's so darn near. To major population centers, you know, um, in in the states we have we're worried about uh, Indian Point, which is 25 miles from uh, from New York City, but but Pickering's right on the outskirts of Toronto, and uh, with even less distance. So 
Pickering's in trouble because of emergency planning. But the other thing is, uh, and they actually admitted this in hearings that when I brought it up, the the Pickering design is designed for one reactor having a problem. Um, they have this thing called a vacuum building, and the vacuum building is designed to handle one nuclear accident at a time. But if a Fukushima event came along and and disabled two or three of them, um, the vacuum building is not adequate, and there would be an enormous radiation release. And and actually, the people that run Pickering and the regulator agreed that um, that part of the design is much weaker than uh, uh, than reactors in the states. You know, the, I have a saying: you know, sooner or later, in any foolproof system, the fools are going to exceed the proofs. And whether it's a Canadian design or you know, we've had, so far, we've had a Babcock-Wilcox design fail at Three Mile Island, a Russian design fail at Chernobyl, uh, a General Electric design fail at, um, at, G, uh, at in Japan. Um, so for the Canadians to say, well, we haven't had one, so therefore we're safe, um, they're not safe, they're just lucky. And, and sooner or later, you're going to roll snake eyes, and a, uh, and a reactor's going to melt down. And uh, at that point, it's too late to... Uh, uh, to make these grandiose claims. Hmm. Now, in the United States, according to the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency, there are 99 operational nuclear reactors in the U.S., while 34 have been permanently shut down. Uh, could some weird weather event, earthquake, or, or even a terrorist attack trigger another Fukushima-style event uh, among one of these reactors? Or, or can Americans have confidence in the nuclear regulatory authorities learning the lessons of Fukushima and not replicating them? You know, we're, we're always fighting the last war. And, and um, uh, before Fukushima, we thought we had learned from Chernobyl. And before Chernobyl, we thought we had learned from Three Mile Island. And I think the, the lesson is that these are very complicated machines, and they fail in different ways. So uh, the nuclear industry in the States, um, on, a, on a shoestring, they're really not spending as much money as they should, have implemented some Fukushima mods, as have the the, uh, the Canadians and around the world, for that matter. People have uh, modified their plants for um, for Fukushima type events, but you know it seems to me that every accident has been unimaginable. And just because we say, well, my plant is in the middle of Oklahoma and we don't have uh, tsunamis out here, therefore we're safe. Is um, is a little bit crazy. We're 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 bound to have a problem. Um, I'm concerned with a lot of aging things, and and whether it's you know, you know the Canadian can-do designs or the American designs, all these things were designed. The fundamental design work was in the '60s, and most of the procurement was in the '70s. So you're dealing with really old equipment now, and. Um, uh, that's been under you know high temperature, high pressure, and uh, oh by the way, high radiation for 40 years, and we just don't know what we don't know. So something else is going to come along. We have a couple problems here in the states. We have a power plant right down from a major dam, the Oconee One Two Three units, and uh, if the dam fails, the uh, the units will be under 20 feet of water, which is a, a, a an event just like Fukushima um, out in Diablo Canyon in California. Um, they're, they're on a 
spur of the San Andreas Fault that wasn't discovered until after the plants were built. So, you know, there's, there seems to be a problem everywhere that we seem to ignore and, and kind of whistle past the graveyard. Mm. I know that the uh, the, the general, the, the um, Fukushima reactors were the General Electric's Mark I reactors, and I know the United States uses uh, many of that, that same model. Uh, have, have they, at least with regard to the, the problems with that system, I mean, for example, the, the spent fuel pools uh, being located above ground, uh, and, you know, are, are there any, you know, people looking at some of the, the design flaws and, and saying, okay, maybe we need to, to make changes here in the United States? You know, a bunch of those, there's 23 identical to Fukushima in the United States, and a bunch of those drain into the Great Lakes. There's there's 40 nuclear power plants that that discharge into the Great Lakes. So if we have a problem here in the States, you're going to feel it in Canada because it can easily make the Great Lake water sources uh, unusable for 40 million people. So one, one Fukushima lesson is that the Pacific is a big place and we're still contaminating it. The Great Lakes are probably 20,000 times smaller. So if we, if we have a nuclear disaster along one of these plants that drains into the Great Lakes, both our countries will have a um, contaminated water supply for decades. You know, but in the States, the, um, we have not moved the fuel pools. They're still seven stories high, and they're still unprotected. Um, and more importantly, the containment designs have not been really modified. What we did in the States is we put a pipe in the side of the containment with a valve, and we keep it open. So the position is, well, we have a containment, but if we, if we keep that valve closed, it won't contain because it will blow up. So let's turn this valve and open our containment, and it's hard to claim it's a containment then, and let that radioactive gas out so the containment doesn't fail. And, and we call that containment venting. And one of the modifications from Fukushima was to put this pipe in and put a valve in and allow it to be open in the event of a nuclear accident um, to exhaust those radioactive gases rather than blowing up the building. Mm. Okay. Uh, that's sort of like the, the, the pressure, pressure cooker uh, uh, Yeah, let's, let's drill a hole in the lid of our pressure cooker so the pressure cooker doesn't blow up. That, that's yeah, basically that solves the problem. <laughs> that's the American solution, right? American way. Um, now, it seems to me the public is, by and large, uh, losing its appetite for nuclear. Uh, it's expensive. It generates all this waste, and there's the, the threat of another... Fukushima, of course, and uh, assuming we could get the government and authorities to comply with, say, an all-out ban on nuclear, uh, what, what are the, the technical and uh, some of the, the, the economic and jurisdictional impediments that one would face in, in you know, you're shutting down and ultimately decommissioning nu- these nuclear reactors? Yeah, the, the, um, of course, the big impediment to building new ones is money. Wall Street is not interested in funding another nuclear power plant. The only nukes that are being built right now are in countries that have an authoritarian government, and the government is backing it up. So um, we, we are just not seeing new nukes being built anywhere. You know, in Canada, um, now they're talking about extending the lives of the, of the plants that are part of Ontario Hydro. And, in fact, it would be cheaper 
to get the uh, get the power from Quebec with all of the hydroelectric they have there than keep the nuclear plants running. So you have a an, an outstanding example of a institutional impediment. You know, there's there's about 20 plants in Ontario, and the um, Ontario government is so pro-nuclear that they'll distort the economy so that they can keep these plants running. And the average plant costs about a billion bucks to knock down, and you know there's 400 of them that worldwide. So you're looking at about 400 billion dollars in in the cost to dismantle these plants. Uh, it's, it's the only growth industry in nuclear power right now is the is the decommissioning of nuclear. There's two types of waste. There's some waste that decay away in a couple hundred years, and you can sort of imagine if you stuck those wastes in the middle of a desert like we are here in the states, um, that um, it's possible that uh, they'll stay out of harm's way for a couple hundred years. But then there's the other waste, which is the the spent fuel. And um, that stays radioactive for a quarter of a million years. And the Canadian design is actually worse than the uh, than the American design. The can-do plants generate a lot more plutonium than the uh, the American design. So that um, which is a, a bomb material and and which is toxic. And oh, by the way, it's also carcinogenic as well. So um, the Canadian problem is actually pound for pound worse than the American problem because of all this uh, all this excess plutonium. Now there's a great movie, and it's called um, Into Eternity, and I think you can get it online. Uh, it's about the the Finns are building a, a high level waste repository. And it's about the design of the Finnish reactor, the, 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 the cave, rather, that's going to hold the spent fuel. And they were, they were discussing, you know, how language changes. I mean, we have a hard time reading Shakespeare, let alone the old Beowulfs and things like that. So if you put a sign over this thing and said, don't dig here, it's really bad stuff below the surface, well, a thousand years from now, people are not going to read, be able to read that because language changes. But the flip side of that is if you put a sign there and you get up the next Stalin or Hitler to come along who wants that stuff because he can make bombs out of it, they're going to dig there. So what do you do with this waste? Do you warn people or do you hope everybody forgets and it stays there? Uh, it's a fascinating movie called Into Eternity. I wanted to move on to uh, Japan and the uh, the the anniversary of the uh, Fukushima disaster. Now I know that last year you were in Japan and uh, the, the the government, uh, which seems to be quite determined to bring back their nuclear energy, um, but you surveyed the damage. Uh, you recorded the radiative levels throughout the country, and uh, I, I'm kind of curious to know what, what stood out for you uh, most about uh, what you found while you were there and, and how the, the Japanese people were uh, responding and adapting to the situation. 
Well, the you know my takeaway from the trip, looking back, and it was a year ago, is and I was there for a month. Um, the inhumanity of the Japanese government and Tokyo Electric to their own people's needs is mind-boggling. I um, I ran into a woman who was three miles from the disaster and had to evacuate, and uh, she lost her hair. Her nose bled for two months, and she was covered with speckles from um, the, you know, sort of like sores all over her body. And her doctor wrote it down as stress. And, and that's what's happening in Japan right now. The doctors who write down radiation as the root cause of these problems are uh, losing their hospital privileges, and they're losing the um, um, uh, they're not being reimbursed for these illnesses. But if they write stress, they get reimbursed and they can still uh, still be doctors. The epidemiological problem there is that uh, scientists like me and others trying to go back over these records, there are none because all of the radiation-related fatalities are being and, and injuries are being written off as stress. So, you know, my, my big takeaway is the... Uh, the inhumanity of, um, of how the Japanese and how Tokyo Electric are, are treating their own people. You know, related to that is um, uh, Japan had 54 nukes running on the, on the day of the uh, disaster. And four were at uh, Daiichi and were permanently damaged. But um, there were still you know, roughly 50 that could have been started back up. And what the... Um, the Japanese banks have done for the last six years. The Japan has shut them all down, but they have a highly experienced cadre of people at these sites, and it costs about a billion dollars a year to pay the salaries and and the infrastructure to keep these plants viable. So, there's you know do the math. There's five fifty uh, plants at a billion dollars. The Japanese banks are paying fifty billion dollars a year to keep these plants viable. Well, no bank does that unless they're sure they're going to get their money back. Six years times 50, they're, they're in this for two or three hundred billion dollars. So now the pressure is the banks want their money back, and the pressure is to get these plants started again so they can get their money back. And the, the pressure on the politicians is astronomical to allow these plants to start back up. This on the most populous, seismically active island in the world. Mm, that seems to be one a hell of a, a nuclear addiction they have. Uh, they're uh, spending that kind of money at, uh, to make it to, to provide those sorts of incentives. Um, on, on the technical front, could you talk? Uh, you know, given your knowledge about uh, you know your, your overview of, of the ways in which uh, TEPCO, the, the the operator of these of the Fukushima plant, and, and the Japanese authorities, the way they should have responded to the disaster once it was. Uh, um, underway. Yeah, and this is a common element for Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, and Fukushima. Um, bureaucracies don't want to evacuate people. Now, I was on CNN saying it's unconscionable not to evacuate out to 30 or 40 kilometers, and the Japanese were evacuating out to three kilometers. And I said it was unconscionable not to get rid of, uh, not to get the women and children out of those areas and even further out. And um, the Japanese didn't do anything there either. Um, it happened at Three Mile Island where the, 
the the government, U.S. government, and the owner basically colluded to uh, um, to, to convince people that the problem was not as severe. It happened at Chernobyl for the first five days until until finally world pressure got the uh, the government to uh, to evacuate. And it happened at Fukushima. So governments don't would rather risk the life of a of a person than uh, than than call for an evacuation. Uh, so you know, shame on Tokyo Electric. You know, I got to I got to spend some time with uh, um, with Naoto Khan, who was the uh, Prime Minister at the time. He's a nice guy. He and I have been on a couple of speaking tours. And I said to him, Prime Minister Khan, uh, you're not a nuclear engineer, and and I can understand how, given the information you had, you made the decisions you did. The Japanese hate him because he didn't evacuate. But he was getting crappy, crappy information. So anyway, he said to me back, he looked at me and he said, thank you. And this is through an interpreter. He said, the information I received was neither accurate nor timely. So they weren't even telling the prime minister of Japan on a real-time basis accurate information. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's just hideous. This nuclear priesthood is more interested in maintaining its own, um, its own orthodoxy rather than admitting that, uh, that things are seriously wrong. Now, I wanted to bring up a technical question with you, and that sprung up from all those Freedom of Information documents that were disclosed months after the incident in which the National Regulatory Commission officials discussed the crisis in real time. There were phone conversations and emails making reference to the spent fuel pools, particularly Fuel Pool 4. Um, one official report mentioned uh, the projecting a source term of 100% of the spent fuel from Unit 4 being released into the atmosphere. Uh, there's another mentioning U4, the, the Unit 4 situation is deteriorating. SFP water inventory is lost. Uh, in the March 16th conference call, the explosion leveled the walls, leveled the structure for the Unit 4 spent fuel pool all the way down to the approximate level of the bottom of the fuels, so there's no water in there whatsoever. And, and what we were told, uh, even by Dr. Caldicott last week, was that the spent fuel from Unit 4 was recovered and stored carefully. So um, if these officials were speaking so matter-of-factly about the loss of water in spent fuel 4 and the zirconium fires... Um, from you know the reactions in the water and such, how do you make sense of these apparently conflicting accounts? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and um, there's a, a series of FOIA requests that that show that the uh, the United States government was terrified that uh, Fukushima was. I think uh, one of them said a utter catastrophe. Um, that was one of the key people is actually saying an utter catastrophe. There's another one where a, uh, a key person at the NRC said um, the, the Fukushima Daiichi containment is the worst in the world. Well, if it was the worst in the world three days after the accident, why wasn't it the worst in the world three years before? But part of the problem is it, it, it didn't, it wasn't as bad as the emails suggest. And I think part of that, a lot of these are in the first two or three days after the disaster. So some of that, uh, to, to coin the phrase, it's a, it's a fog of war thing, that they were getting lots of reports, and um, uh, some of them turned out to be, um, while factual, not as bad as uh, 
as the emails made them out to be. There, there was no total loss of water inventory in the spent fuel pool. But, you know, here's a, a fascinating thing that no reporter has ever checked out. Um, in, at, at Fukushima Unit 4, um, emergency repairs were made in the two months after the nuclear disaster. So this is, the, the, hot, the site is radioactive as all get out. And the first thing Tokyo Electric did was install extra bracing in the bottom, in the fuel pool bottom, the floor, um, which is actually the ceiling, the floor of the pool. But they put jacks underneath the floor to hold it up. And I kept saying, why did they do that? Why was that their first priority? So was the Unifor fuel pool in jeopardy? Oh, yeah. I was on John King, uh, on CNN, and I said they had about a day to get water in that pool. Um, they got water in in time to prevent it from burning, but yet there's this side story that you and I have never been uh, uh, made aware of. Why did they brace the bottom of that pool if everything was uh, was okay? I don't think the fuel came out perfectly clean either. You know, the the fuel has been removed, um, but they never talked about damage or having to pull the fuel too hard or or things like that. Um, and we still have three pools to go, which are even, in fact, worse than the Unit 4. Mm. So to answer your question, it's a fog of war issue. A lot of reports are coming in the first couple of days. Um, and then there was a stroke of luck. This is the, um, you, you have to, like Naoto Khan said, you've got to believe in God or something like that. When, um, the, the fuel pool was split at, uh, at Fukushima. And on one side was equipment being stored that had to go back in the nuclear reactor. And on the other side was the fuel, which is hot and physically boiling off the fuel. And in between them was a, was a gate. And the gate was held in place by a, a like a rubber tire, like a rubber uh, bike, uh, bike tire. And it was inflated. And that pool on the, on the equipment side, that had been scheduled to be drained three days before, but it wasn't. And a day or two after the accident, as the water levels are coming down and the fuel is about ready to catch fire, the air pressure in that seal failed and that wall collapsed, allowing the clean water on the one side to flood into the spent fuel pool, and it bought them a couple more days. So it was, uh, you know, I don't, I don't believe in divine intervention, but it certainly was fortuitous that they were behind schedule and didn't drain that second pool. Um, so there were, um, you know, this could have been much worse. If that pool had caught fire, um, northern Japan would have been uninhabitable forever. And, um, uh, you know, the Vancouver and the, uh, would be uh, highly contaminated, as would be important down to Portland and things like that. But we know that didn't happen because the radiation levels on site still allowed human beings to be there. If that pool had caught fire, um, the, the staff would have died. Um, so, uh, but while that was happening, they're telling us on the radio, they have all these, ins all these reports saying, we got a catastrophe on our hands. And we're being told, and the Japanese were being told, and I'm sure the Canadians were too, you know, don't worry, it's under control. 
uh, you know, shame on the bureaucracy for uh, behaving that way. I guess I only have time for for one more question, and uh, I guess that relates to the trip last year, where I saw, I mean, I saw some of the images of your trip, and uh, there was like an image of you uh, with a respiratory mask uh, and uh, in front of these uh, abandoned radioactive uh, ghost towns and and scenes in the background, and it it came across as a little eerie uh, to me, and it made me wonder if we weren't getting a glimpse of the future, you know, not just for Japan, but for the whole planet with uh, these... uh, in the age of nuclear, as we we can't seem to back away. I I was wondering if any of those sorts of morbid thoughts uh, may have come to your mind. Um, Yeah, the mask that I was wearing uh, is a pretty, it's a $30 mask. It's not a real expensive mask, but it removes 99.98% of the particle matter in the air. Those little crummy paper masks that you see the Japanese wearing remove about 10%. I brought my mask home, and um, and we measured it at Worcester Poly, and it was radioactive. Well, that, I'm glad that stuff re- wound up in my mask and not in my lungs. So, you know, my my takeaway on wearing that mask is, I wish I could buy thousands more and give them to the Japanese, because they need them. They're there 24/7, 365, and uh, they need them much more than I did. Arnie Gunderson, I do appreciate your taking the time to talk to us. I, I hope you can make the time to share your unique insights with us again as the situation in Japan uh, continues to develop. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We've been speaking with Arnie Gunderson, former nuclear industry executive and engineer and one of the directors of Fairwinds Energy Education. You can read you can read and listen more of Dr. Gunderson, Mr. Gunderson's informative articles and podcast by visiting the site Fairwinds, F-A-I-R-E, winds.org. We'll have more of our special programming around the sixth anniversary of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster when we discuss with Dr. Peter Kuznick the history of Japan's paradoxical embrace of nuclear energy. We hope you'll join us then. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. We are now also broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.